Welcome to Urban Dharma, where suffering is always optional. Hello, this is Reverend Kusla, and I'm talking to you from downtown Los Angeles. I live at the International Buddhist Meditation Center, which is... Uh, in Koreatown, the Koreatown section of Los Angeles. We're a few blocks away from the uh, Staples Center, if you're familiar with that, just to give you an idea of where this podcast is coming from. Uh, a couple days ago, Thursday as a matter of fact, I was invited to uh, speak at a Catholic high school called Bishop Montgomery High School uh, in a comparative religions class on Buddhism and who the Buddha was. Um, the presentation lasted about 126 minutes, so I thought it was a little long for a podcast, so I've split it in two. This is part one of my presentation, and then the third podcast coming up will be part two. Um, about 16 minutes into the presentation, one of the students came with a camera and wanted to take a picture for the yearbook, so there's about a minute and 30 seconds of not much of a presentation, but you'll hear us arranging ourselves and the picture being taken. And then about 27 minutes into the presentation, a student asked about nirvana. It's a person who has achieved nirvana perfect, and so you can't quite hear the question, but you will hear the answer. Um, and that's about it. Um, I think you'll find this presentation interesting. I uh, hope it's clear, and I hope you find it useful. And part two will be in the next podcast. And let me play my blues harmonica just a little bit to lead us into the presentation itself. Here we go. Okay, testing, testing. Good, good. Okay. Modern technology is a wonderful thing. So my name is uh, <clears throat> Reverend Kusla. Uh, I was born a Lutheran a long time ago, and in high school I became an agnostic. Uh, it was our job in high school in the 60s to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30, and we all did our job. And then I turned 30 and realized I'd be dead soon. I just watched uh, Logan's Run, if any of you have seen that. And in Logan's Run, when you turn 30, the little thing starts blinking in your palm and you're toast. So um, I got a book by Houston Smith called World Religions and read that book and liked the chapter on Buddhism. It made so much sense to me. I'd never heard about Buddhism before, but what they talked about, the human condition, what it means to be a human being, spoke to me clearly. Um, I have never had a relationship with God, and I have never communicated with God. And so when people talk about God, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about. But when the Buddha talked about how difficult it is to be a human being, I sort of knew what he was talking about, because we've all had good times and bad times being human beings. So I got another book, the phone book, and found a meditation center and started to meditate. And then in 1993, I decided to become a postulant, and 1994, I became a novice monk, and 1996, I became a fully ordained monk. And um, I wasn't quite sure what an American Buddhist monk did, because, you know, I had watched Kung Fu in the 70s, and I don't know if that was a good example. They had a lot of candles in their temples, and they sat around and said wise things. But I live in downtown Los Angeles, and not too many people say wise things down there. And we don't have any candles. So it's like, okay. I, I answered the phone one day, and it was Deacon Szymanski from uh, L.A. County State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California. And he asked if I would be willing to travel to Lancaster once a week and work with the Buddhist prisoners. And my response was, there are Buddhists in prison? Because I had read all about Buddhism. It didn't seem like we went there. But we go there. And so for a year, I was a volunteer at L.A. County State Prison for Men teaching the prisoners about Buddhism and meditation, and I was able to find some other volunteers to help me. 
And when I left there, they took over, and the program continues today. And then for the next four years, I was at Central Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles. And I would go twice a week, and I would work with the young people there, um, talk to them about Buddhism. But more importantly, I talked to them about meditation and how they can come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. Because a lot of the young people, uh, this was the first time away from home. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But first time they hadn't been with their parents. And they're in juvenile hall. They don't have a bed, their own bed. They don't have their own pillows. And so they were a little stressed, to say the least. I asked this one girl, I said to her, I said, what do you miss most about being in juvenile hall? She said, I miss carbonation. I want a soda. That was what she missed the most. She wanted a Coke. You know, just one of those bubbles. So when you go to juvenile hall, you miss different things. And so I went there and uh, had a great opportunity to see how many different ways people can suffer, whether they be old or young, male or female. For a year, while I was going to Central Juvenile Hall, I also went out to Camp Kilpatrick, which is a high-risk probation camp in Malibu. And this is uh, where they put some of the guys uh, who are rascals. And uh, I taught a blues harmonica course there. So I was able to get some harmonicas donated. And we would sit down, and I would bring in some CDs of my favorite blues guys, Muddy, Waller, Muddy Waters, Holland Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, number one, and two, James Cotton. All these greats. And we would play the blues, you know, and these guys were living the blues. So they sort of already had the feeling, they just didn't know about the harmonica. And then I found a professional guitar player to come to help me with that project. And, and he taught the guys how to read music and what music meant. So when they went home, they got to keep their harmonica. And I just imagine them going home the first time and say, Mom, look what I got at camp. I got a harmonica. I wonder how Mom felt about that. So I was there for four years, again learning a lot, and then I was invited to Garden Grove, which is in Orange County. I was invited to do the keynote address at the mayor's prayer breakfast and talk about Buddhism. And I said to them, well, you know, I don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. Is that okay? And they said, that's fine. We're going to have a good breakfast for you. We just want you to tell us about Buddhism. And I did. And I brought my harmonica with me and played a little tune for them. And they all liked that. And the chief of police was in the audience. And a week later, his office called me up and asked if I'd be interested in being a police chaplain for Garden Grove. They were expanding their chaplaincy program. And before... Me, they had only white Christian police chaplains, but they wanted to get a Jewish chaplain, a Muslim chaplain, a Buddhist chaplain. And so I thought to myself, gosh, I've been behind bars now for five years. It would be so cool to ride in the police car. You know, Cops was always one of my favorite shows. And I'm thinking car chases and all sorts of stuff. And I did have a chance to go on one car chase. It was a lot of fun. Uh, nobody got hurt, though, and, and the bad guys... These aren't really bad guys. They're just unskillful guys who were caught. But um, I have my own bulletproof vest that I wear when I go on ride-alongs. And I have uh, uh, a shirt that says chaplain. I have a hat that says chaplain. I have a jacket that says chaplain. And the reason we have chaplain all over our clothing is because the bad guys will recognize we're clergy, spiritual people, and they won't shoot us. And so I'm thinking, but if the bad guy's an atheist, I'm going first, you know. So, thankfully, that hasn't been the case. And we don't carry guns, even though we're trained in, in how to use them. Uh, but, but we're told, if it really gets bad, to just run. You know? <laughs> because there's no way for us to protect ourselves, you know? We're just, like, we, we can't sit in the car because people might shoot the car. So, so, when I get out, like at a car stop, and the officer's going up to the car, you know, I'm, I, I get out, too, and I stand by the door. And then I'm looking, you know, buildings, you know, rocks, trees, what can I hide behind if something goes down? And then my job would be to go back to the car and push the button. They have a button in there which calls for backup. So my job is to back up and, and to be with the guy. You know, again, being clergy, being a Buddhist, uh, my job, I'm supposed to be peaceful. I'm supposed to be love and kindness, compassion. So I can't go rough up prisoners. I can't go, you know, okay, you're going to jail, buddy. My job is to be there and be the heart of the police car to be an example of compassion and wisdom. We have 11-hour ride-alongs, and you can imagine getting into a car with a police officer because they don't know who I am. I don't know who they are. They don't necessarily want to take me. 
So I go into the briefing, and I go up to the sergeant, and I say, Sergeant, I'd like to do a ride-along today. We have to do a certain amount of ride-alongs each month. Sergeant says, okay. <clears throat> and he assigns me to a car. So now I'm, I usually go with the rookies. I usually go with the new guys, because the old guys don't want the clergy with them. And so I get in the car with the rookie, and he has to move everything aside, because that's his office. I'm, I'm in his space now. That's his office. And I sit down. And now I've got 11 hours sitting next to this guy. I don't even know his name. Never saw him before. He's never seen me before. And so we start driving around Garden Grove. And we take a couple calls, and we might stop off for, you know, get some water or something. We take a couple more calls, stuff like that. And, and as the day goes along, I start talking about Buddhism. He starts talking about his wife. They just got some new drapes. They're thinking about buying a new car. And we become real to each other, you know. And that's the whole deal. It's to build up those friendships with the officers. Allow them to talk to somebody. Because they see a lot of stuff that we've never seen before. And if they're riding alone, in a garden grove they do ride alone, they got nobody to talk to about it. And to put it into perspective, to sort of bounce this stuff off of. So we're there, you know, sort of giving meaning to some stuff. You know, why did that accident have to happen? Why did that guy have to die, you know? And to go up on scene and see, you know, dead bodies and stuff, it's really sort of rocks your world. So we're there to talk with each other and sort of make sense of the whole thing. Of course, ultimately, it makes no sense at all, does it? Now, besides being with the police department, I'm also at UCLA, and I'm the Buddhist chaplain on campus, and we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. The Catholics are really nice to us, and the reasons Catholics are nice to Buddhists is because of the Second Vatican Council, where they said Buddhism is okay. So when the Catholics said Buddhism was okay, then they started talking to us. And so we have a good working relationship. The Protestants can't quite figure us out yet. And the Jews and Muslims just don't know. But the Catholics do know. We also have something in common that we don't have in common with Jews, Muslims, and Protestants. And that's a, a clergy that lives in a monastic setting. So we have priests and nuns. And in Buddhism, we have monks and nuns. So we have that in common, too. And these are men and women who have devoted their lives to their own personal training and being of assistance to others. And when I get around a bunch of priests, I'm amazed at how much they know. You know, they all go to school for a really long time, and they all have all these degrees and stuff, and they're really smart, you know? And it's so, so, sort of fun for me to hear them talk about their theology, because my approach is a little bit different. And I'm always amazed at how much they know, and how much I don't know it keeps me humble. Last year, for the first time, we had the Monks in the West Conference held at the Sage City of 10,000 Buddhas. These were Catholic monks and Buddhist monks who came together for three days to talk about inner life and training. What does it mean to be a monastic in the West? How do the monasteries work? What kind of training do you go through? How difficult is it to live in a single-gender community? What do you do about love and intimacy in those relationships if you're not going to have lust? How do you keep a healthy mind state when you look at the world and see how crazy the world is? And one of the Catholic monks refused to become a reverend or a priest. He wanted to be nothing more than a monk. He said, if I go to the next level of ordination, I'm going to have to give homilies, I'm going to have to do weddings, I'm going to have to do funerals, and I want to be a monk. I don't want to do that stuff. I want to practice. And I'm thinking, that is so cool. Because all the other priests were sort of doing weddings, doing funerals, giving talks. But this monk was at the monastery, and he was being a monk. So we talked about a lot of stuff, and one of the things we talked about was sex. Of course, for us, it was how not to have sex, you know. And we had these old guys, and we had these younger guys, and we had all these men. And I had never met, had heard men talk about sex in the way we did those three days. And I wanted to share a little something about that, that... I never really understood how men are supposed to love, you know, because every man in my life told me how to lust. But not one of them told me how to love. Now, I've had women in my life tell me how to love, but they told me how to love as a woman, not as a man. And I think men and women love differently because of birth. So how does a man love? And more importantly, how does a monastic man love? who lives in a single-gender community, and how does he express that love in his intimacy with the people being loved? 
without breaking his vows and precepts. So I worked on this, and in 2006, we were gathering again to talk about just that, love and intimacy in a monastic setting. That will be the, the conference title, and I'll keep you updated on how it goes. So this is what came to me about how men love. I think a man loves by accepting the person being loved unconditionally. And that's it. When a man really loves you, he accepts you just the way you are. He doesn't want you to change in any way. Now, isn't that so cool? Have you ever seen a big burly guy with a bunch of tattoos and a hairy back pick up a little newborn baby? And he's just so, you can tell he's just in love with the little guy, you know? And, and he's awkward and doesn't quite know what to do. So how does a man now express that love? He expresses his love through kindness. So when a man is in love, he accepts unconditionally, and he expresses that love through kindness. And what did we start off with today? We started off with a loving-kindness meditation, <clears throat> which is all about how to love and be kind to everybody you come in contact with. Now, a problem arises because you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, you know, what happens if somebody comes up and asks me for a dollar? And I know I'm supposed to love this person and be kind to them, but I don't want to give them a dollar, too. Do I have to give them a dollar if I love them? And the answer is no, but you have to be kind when you say no. It's okay to have boundaries and be in love. It's okay to have those in place. We don't have to change those in any way. What, what we need to do is, is be aware of the fact that kindness is an expression of that love. So we can say no and be kind. Oh, that's fine. Sure. Uh, sure. Should I comb my hair? Or, okay. okay. Besides being at UCLA as a Buddhist chaplain, I'm also at the medical center at UCLA. And I'm on a spiritual care committee at the UCLA Medical Center, and I give presentations to the new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. I'll be doing one uh, next Thursday, as a matter of fact, to the new chaplains. This is for the, the chaplains who are at the hospital. When they get a Buddhist patient, what do you do? If you're a Catholic chaplain or a Protestant chaplain or a Muslim chaplain, do you approach them the same way that you would? And the answer is no, because Buddhism is different. If you approach a Buddhist patient, you have to approach them in a Buddhist way. So I explain to them what some of the differences are and how they might be skillful in their approach to Buddhist patients. And what I warn them, and please don't take this wrong, but I warn them not to pray for them in their presence because it confuses us. You know, if somebody comes in and starts praying for us, you know, whoa. So it's okay to pray for a Buddhist patient if they can't see you because you're giving them some energy. It might heal them too. But we don't necessarily pray in the same way you do because we don't have anybody to pray to in the way you do. Though Buddhist prayer does occur, but it occurs because of the practice, meditation practice. Please. Great, yeah. Yeah, oh, is this the yearbook, huh? Yeah. Wow. Okay, all right. Not to put a dent in your thoughts. Not at all. No, this is cool. Okay. It's great. You have to come in tight. Tall guys in the back. I'm little. Okay, front row. Does that camera have film? Yeah. Wow. One, two, three. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, I'm black. It's that old school technology. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. You were talking about prayer. Okay. And that you don't pray to a yeah, God. That's right. All right. So we don't confuse Yeah. Now, having said that we don't pray, uh, the Buddha did pray. The Buddha was a theist. He did believe in God. But there was a problem. Because when he was young, at the age of 19, it said he went out into the streets of the city and he saw four things that forever changed his life. He saw an old person, he saw a sick person, he saw a dead person, and he saw a holy person. And when he saw the old person, he was surprised at how old and wretched that man was and why wasn't anything being done for him. And his charioteer said, well, everybody that's born has to get old. That's the nature of life. And he hadn't really thought about it that way. And what do we do in our culture when somebody gets really old? Don't we put them in rest homes if we can so we don't have to look at them, somebody else can take care of them? That's what happened to the Buddha, too. Then he saw this really sick person. And he was surprised at, at how sick this body can get, how sick this mind can get. And he said, why? And Jhana said, because he was born. Because we're born, we have to get sick. Everybody who has been born has been sick. And what do we do with sick people? We put them in hospitals so we don't have to look at them. We don't have to care for them. So you can see why the Buddha hadn't seen all these things in the same way. We haven't seen a lot of the same stuff, too. And then he saw this dead person. You know, he was lying there and he was bloated, sort of like some of the bodies we saw in New Orleans, you know, before they were picked up. And the Buddha said, wow, that guy's really sick. And China said, oh, no, he's more than sick. He's dead. And everybody that's born has to die. And what do we do when somebody gets killed or dies, we cover them up so we can't see them. We take them to a mortuary and we buy some new clothes and buy them some new shoes and comb their hair and put some makeup on and cover them with flowers so we can't smell the decaying flesh. We take them out. All the relatives come and Uncle Max looks like he's just sleeping. And we don't get to see the reality of our life in the same way the Buddha didn't get to see reality in his life as well. Now he's going back to the palace and he sees this really holy person all dressed in white, calm, unaffected by all the suffering the future Buddha had just seen. And that was the messenger, the fourth messenger. The Buddha did not leave home, did not leave his family because people were dying. He didn't leave his family because people were sick or getting old. He left his family because he saw a holy person. And he felt the holy lifestyle had the answers to the human suffering he had just seen. Now imagine 2,500 years ago in India, having seen all this suffering... Maybe even looking at the TV today and seeing all the suffering that's occurring in Pakistan right now and all the suffering that did occur in New Orleans and still continuing to occur. And imagine you petitioning God, please, please, don't make these humans suffer like this. Step forward. End their suffering. And I imagine that's what the Buddha did because he believed in God. And not one of the gods of India would do it would step forward and end human suffering. So he took it upon himself to find the answer, to find out why humans have to suffer and how to end that suffering. And it took him six years of ascetic practice and meditation. But at the end of those six years, he had achieved his final goal. He had found the answer to human suffering. He never had to suffer again. And for 49 days, he enjoyed his release from suffering and then, for 45 years, he taught how to end suffering. Why we suffer, how to end suffering. That's all he talked about. Does that mean he didn't believe in gods anymore? No, he still believed in the gods of India, but he found one thing they couldn't do. Does that mean all Buddhists are atheists and they don't believe in God? No, a lot of Buddhists, most Buddhists do believe in God. But not because of Buddhism. Buddhism is about how to end suffering. Are there some Buddhists who don't believe in God? Yes, but not because of Buddhism. Are there some Buddhists that don't know? Yes, and that is because of Buddhism, because we don't talk about God. If a person comes to me and wants to know about God, I will send them to a Catholic priest or a Protestant minister or a rabbi or imam, because that's their job. My job is suffering. Why humans suffer and how to end the suffering. That's what Buddhist monks and nuns do. We work on ending our own suffering, and then we help others in their search to end their suffering. 
So what did the Buddha say? How did he lay this out? How do we end suffering? And why do we suffer? You know, when I, last week I was at Paulus Verdes High School. And it is a tough sell to talk about suffering. Because it's nice up there. You know? You can see the ocean from the campus. There's some really cool cars in the parking lot. And I'm going, hey, you know, life sucks. And they go, well, I know, we lost the game last week. You know? So it's, it's sort of like that, you know. I mean, what kind of suffering am I talking about? Well, there's like little suffering. There's like, oh, you know, um, I can't watch my favorite TV show. Little suffering. Or I got a bad grade. Or we're not going to take a vacation. Oh, I can't get, the, you know, there's that. But then there's the big suffering like I've got terminal cancer and I'm going to die in three months. Now, that's the big deal. That's when your whole life changes. Or one of your parents dies. And they will, if you live long enough. And you go, wow, how do I deal with this now? You know? And that's what Buddhism is about, is coming to a place of acceptance with the way things are, rather than always wanting to change things and make them better, make them perfect. In Buddhism, they say we are not born in original sin. We are born in original ignorance. We are born stupid. And we do dumb things, and that's why we suffer. And all we need to do is change that stupidity into wisdom, and we'll never have to suffer again. Now, let me tell you what suffering is. And the best definition I've heard came from a seventh grader named Esmeralda. I was speaking to her class in Glendale, California, about Buddhism. And after my presentation, she raised her hand and said, Reverend Kusala, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. Wow. Can you imagine that? You know, seventh grader knew that already. So I'm not talking about getting rid of pain. I'm talking about getting rid of suffering. If you have a body, if you have a mind, you will have pain. But suffering is optional. So the Buddha, in his very first talk, said, I have discovered four truths. The first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Not always, but ultimately. We're born, we get sick. We're born, we get old. We're born, we die. If that's not bad enough, everything in our life that we truly love, cherish, and want to hold on to will be taken away from us, and the culprit is impermanence and change. We can never own anything, ultimately. We can never control anything, ultimately. Not even ourself. We and everything in this universe, according to Buddhism, is in a constant state of flux and change. The answer is nirvana. But the reason we suffer so much as human beings is because we have desire. We really want to hold on to the good stuff and push away the bad stuff. So desire, craving, thirst, clinging, repulsion, pushing away, that kind of desire causes our suffering. If we can get rid of that desire, we will never have to suffer, and nirvana is the end of desire. Nirvana is the end of suffering because it's the end of desire. And the fourth truth is how to achieve nirvana. It's the noble eightfold path which is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I have a website, urbandharma.org. This information is on that website. So if you don't, can't write fast enough to write it all down, or if you forget half of what I say, which you will, and you want to go to urbandharma.org, it is available to you. It's 1,500 pages. Question, yes. Enlightened? Yeah, um, are you considered as perfect? Like, are you perfect? Did you achieve all these? Um, these are you considered perfect? Yeah, like, are you perfect? Since you, don't you are. You are a perfect human being. You want to know what a perfect human being is? Yeah. Want me to describe it to you? Because they're hard to find. I keep looking. Haven't found any yet. A perfect human being, according to Buddhism, instead of having lust, only has love, the kind of love that I talked about earlier. A perfect human being, instead of having greed, 
only has generosity. A perfect human being, instead of having hatred and anger, only has loving kindness and compassion. A perfect human being, instead of having delusion and ignorance, only has wisdom. A perfect human being is wise, compassionate, generous, and loving. That's what a perfect human being is, according to Buddhism. They never get any better than a human being. They just become the best human being they can be. Make sense, sorry? Okay. Now, have you ever seen anybody that's like that? I haven't either. I've heard they exist. And I think one of the reasons I can't see them is because they're not drawing attention to themselves. They probably don't even have cool-looking hair. Normal clothes. Might take the bus. Don't have too much to say. Sort of in the background, you know. Somebody drops something, they pick it up for them, and then they leave. Those kind of people, you know what I'm saying? Because the kind of person that keeps drawing attention to themselves usually isn't perfect. Got some issues to work out. We all know that. So that's what I'm talking about with a perfect human being. Buddhism is all about being a human being. Nothing more. And that's why I was attracted to Buddhism, because I am a human being. And nothing more. Most cool. So how can we use this Eightfold Path to achieve our perfection as a human being? Well, it's, we can break it down into three categories. We can break it down into personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. And in the first category of personal discipline, we find right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase our suffering. They are harsh, malicious, false, and gossip or idle chatter. Those kinds of speech always increase our suffering. If we can speak skillfully, we will suffer less. When I was at Juvenile Hall, I suggested to the guys and gals there to start using the words please and thank you and to see if that would change their level of suffering with the staff. And do you know what? If you said please or thank you to the staff, the staff was more than happy to help you out a little bit. Using speech to reduce your suffering. Using speech in a skillful way. The Buddha said there are three kinds of activity that always increase our suffering. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Now, the problem with killing is that it's really hard to be born. And if you're a Christian, this is your very first time here. Welcome. In the Buddhist tradition, we feel we've done this before. Though I can't remember ever having done this before. It seems like my first time, too. And if you're a Hindu, you've done it many times before as well. So the Christians have a lot of pressure. You get about 70 years to get it right and go for eternity. We, on the other hand, can screw up a few hundred more lifetimes and eventually get it right while we're suffering and feeling uncomfortable in all those lifetimes, no matter where we were born. Isn't that interesting? This sort of diversity of afterlife. You know, in the, in the class before, one of the students said, well, do you guys go to heaven? Because, you know, after listening to you talk, Kusla, I can't see why you'd go to heaven. Well, they didn't really say that, but I'm implying that. And, and yes, we do. We go to Buddhist heaven. We have our own heaven. It's really cool. We have actually 32 of them. 32 heavens, 32 hells. We get a lot of places to go. We don't go there because of what we believe, though. We don't go there because of our faith. We go there because of what we think, what we say, and what we do. This diversity in afterlife allows you to have a Buddhist in your life and encourage them to be the best Buddhist they can be because they're going to Buddhist heaven. And I can encourage you to be the best Christian you can be because you're going to that heaven. And we may never see each other again. This may be our only time in all of eternity that our paths cross. Now, I've done a couple weddings, and in three, on three occasions, I've married a Catholic girl to a Buddhist, pardon me, Catholic guy to a Buddhist girl. Catholic guy, Buddhist girl. So the very first one, I was very concerned. And, I, and we were doing a little counseling, and I said to them, you know, I said, Chances are pretty good that you're going to go to different places after you die. That this may be the only time you're going to be together on this earth. Is 50 years going to be long enough together? They said, yeah. 
little humor. Okay. <laughs> so this Buddhist afterlife allows us to create community. If we see that everybody's right, if we see that the Muslims are right, and the Catholics are right, and the Protestants are right, and the Buddhists are right, because what they're saying is designed to be a better Buddhist, or to be a better Catholic, or to be a better Muslim. It's not designed as a one-world religion. Now, I know that may sound a little heretical, but one, I have a problem with that word, one, which I talked about in the last class. That one oftentimes leads to uniformity. If there's only one nation, only one God, only one way to read a book, what about the people that don't do it that way? What do we do with them? Where do we put them? What did England do with some of the bad people that used to live in England? They sent them to Australia. Okay, you're not going to work with us? We're going to send you away. In this world of ours today, where do you send people? Pacoima? Just let them sort of, you know, everybody goes to Pacoima who doesn't fit the... You know what I'm saying? So I like the idea of diversity and unity. When I do interreligious dialogue, I tell the people at the panel, or the panel, don't try to make me one. Try to see how we're already connected. Because in Buddhism, we're already connected. But that connection, that diversity, allows us to create community, allows us to create unity. Stealing. What's wrong with stealing? Well, we think we own stuff. That's the problem. We think we own things. We think we own the car. We think we own our shoes. You know? And if somebody takes the stuff we think we own, it ruins our day. Now, back in the 80s, I had a brand new Opal Manta. Oh, it's flag blue, four on the floor, audio cassette deck, my first ever new car. It was so cool. I drove that like I was a king. And it didn't take but two weeks to go out to the carport where it was parked and realize that somebody had broken into my car and stolen my cassette recorder, my brand new car. And I was so angry. I went to my car and I said, car, who owns you? Who is paying the payments, car? And I looked at my car and my car looked back to me and never said anything. And I had a deep insight at that moment that I didn't own that car. I was using that car until somebody wanted it more than I did. And the night before, they wanted that stereo more than I did, or I would have been sleeping in my car. And that's how it works with everything I own. I'm just using it until either it breaks, it rusts, it's misplaced, or it's taken. So if we take things from people and they think they own those things, we are creating suffering in their life. That's why stealing is wrong, because people think they own things. Sexual misconduct. You know, this is a tough one in L.A., because in L.A., everything is okay. When I was in high school, we couldn't do half the stuff. And the stuff we did do, we always felt guilty about. You know, and now I look at the world today, and I'm thinking, okay, if you can find your place... If you can find where you fit in, you will be ultimately happy in your sexual activity. And you know what? The Buddha didn't quite go along with that. What the Buddha implied in everything he said was this. The act of sex will never satisfy the desire for sex. The activity of sex will never satisfy your desire for sex. So you can have sex like a thousand times and one in a thousand and one. You can have the best boyfriend or girlfriend you've ever had and want another one. Those desires just don't go away by having sex. So we see nothing wrong in Buddhism with sex. At UCLA this past Tuesday, a girl said, well, how do you guys feel about homosexuality? What did the Buddha say about homosexuality? And I said, the Buddha said nothing about homosexuality. You know? So we don't take a stand. We don't think it's good. We don't think it's bad. What we do think is unskillful is the desire. Because that desire causes suffering, and that desire cannot be satisfied. So the goal in Buddhism is not to end sex. The goal in Buddhism is to end desire for sex. Now, if you ended your desire for sex, would you have sex ever again? Probably not. 
oh, it's too much time, energy. We could do better things with our time. You know what I mean? So that's where we stand. What is sexual misconduct according to Buddhism for a layperson? The Buddha said four things about that. He said, don't have sex with people that are married. It causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are engaged. It causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are being supported by their parents, children. It causes a lot of suffering. And don't have sex with people against their will. It causes a lot of suffering. That's what the Buddha said about sex to lay people. Now, in each city and village and county and state and country in this world, every one of them has more rules and regulations for you to follow. It's one of the most, you know, controlled activities we do, our sexual activity. And in most cases, it's just so people won't suffer. You know, I mean, if, if it was legal to have sex any time in any place you wanted to, think about how uncomfortable that could be. You know, it's time for lunch, and there they are. You know, Wow. <laughs> so we have rules, you know, that say if you want to have sex, you have to be inside. People can't watch you and stuff. And, and that's not because sex is bad, but I think it's more because we don't want people to suffer. You know? Now, the next aspect is right livelihood. What did the Buddha say about that? He said, try to find a profession that allows you to support yourself and your family, but decrease the suffering rather than increase the suffering. So he didn't really advocate people being a butcher or a bartender, because those can really create suffering and heedlessness, the bartender. He, he didn't really like people making atom bombs either, though they didn't have them back then, but munitions and poison, not a good thing to do. Though it could be necessary, but maybe somebody else could do it. So a Buddhist wants to go into a profession where they can support themselves and their family and not create any more suffering. Now, I was giving a talk at USC to some business majors, and one of the guys said, well, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? Because it sounds like it's Buddhists just want to be sort of simple and, and, and not make a lot of money. And I said, oh, no, it's really good if you make a lot of money, because then you can give that much more money away. So, see, it's not how much money you have, it's what you do with it that counts. And I'm so happy that um, the founder of Microsoft, who is Bill Gates, is now giving a lot of money away. Because he's got tons, right? But he's giving it away now. That is so cool. So don't be nervous about making money, but just spend it wisely. So that's the first part. That's how we start being a Buddhist. We watch what we say. We watch what we do. Now, as I've been talking, I haven't really talked about right and wrong. Because you know what? In Buddhism, we don't have right and wrong. In Buddhism, we don't have good and bad either. In Buddhism, we have skillful and unskillful, more suffering and less suffering. Hmm? Interesting, isn't it? Anybody seen that new TV show, My Name is Earl? Okay. What a great show. That's all about karma, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and he's got his list of people that he messed around with. And, and so he wants to change his karma because he realizes if he changes his karma, he'll have a better life. And he's so inventive as he's going back and righting the wrongs. Well, instead of God, instead of a divine lawgiver in Buddhism, we have karma. We have cause and consequence. Cause and consequence takes the place of God in that respect. We don't petition God to go after our enemies. We know that our enemies, the people who are unskillful, will suffer because of their karma, not because of what I think should happen or because of a divine being. Now, can we have karma and not have past and future? No. We need past and future in order to have karma. Because you know, you have seen people who have been really jerky in this life and have had a good life. And you have seen people who have been saints and wonderful in this life and died young. And you're thinking, what is the deal? Why did the good die young and the, and the unskillful live to be old and ripe? Why don't they die young? Karma is all about cause and consequence. And sometimes the consequences don't take root and reach fruition in this lifetime. Sometimes something you did two lifetimes ago is now just starting to be a consequence for you. 
And you go to yourself and you say, wow, I'm really working hard to be a good person and look at my life. Like Earl looked at his life. What's wrong with my life? What do I need to do to change my life? And what we would say is we need to change our karma. And how you change your karma in Buddhism is by practicing the precepts and practicing meditation. What is karma? Karma is everything you think, everything you say, and everything you do. And then the consequences of what you say, think, and do is called vipaka in Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism. Cause and consequence, karma vipaka. Can we change the consequences? Yes, we can. If we know something's coming down, what we need to do is we need to be proactive on our approach to life. We need to find some old ladies to walk across the street. We need to be helpful. Go to some food kitchens and, and offer food to the hungry. Go to some shelters and offer to clean up the shelters. We need to proactively respond to those consequences as they manifest so we don't have to be victims of those consequences. Isn't that a cool way of looking at it? Like you're not a victim now. Your life's starting to get a little rocky and uncomfortable, and you say, okay, I can do some good stuff now. I'm not going to take this. I'm going to go out and do some good stuff. I'm going to change my life. I'm in charge. My life is created because of what I think, what I say, and what I do. And I can work with that. Most cool. Now, something of interest to some of you who might have wondered about the tsunami and about the hurricanes and about the earthquake in Pakistan. Did God do that? Did karma do that? Was it caused by sin? Why did those things happen? And when the tsunami hit, I heard a Buddhist scholar, a very well-known Buddhist scholar, said it was their karma. That's why those people in Thailand died. It was their karma. And I heard a Christian minister say it happened because of sin. And I'm going, what is wrong with these people? Because in Buddhism, nothing ever happens because of one thing. It always happens because of five things. The five cosmic forces. And I'll share those with you. If you're having a bad day, you can't blame one thing. The first, the first cause is natural. It's like the earthquakes. It's like gravity. It's like the sun and the moon going around. Its cause is natural environmental forces. That's the first cause of why things happen. The second cause of why things happen is genetic. It's biological. It's genes and chromosomes. So sometimes our life is difficult because of our genes and chromosomes. Sometimes our life is difficult because of natural forces beyond our control. Those are the first two things. The third thing, the third reason why stuff happens is karma, cause and consequence. Okay? That's sort of the moral aspect of why things happen. If I was more skillful, this wouldn't have happened. The fourth reason, the fourth reason stuff happens is your religious practice. And we call it dharma in our case. How we practice Buddhism affects what happens to us in our life. If you're a Catholic, how you would practice your Catholicism, Catholicism affects you. Your practice will affect you. So that's another reason why stuff happens. And the final reason stuff happens is because of mind. Our mind creates a lot of stuff. Our mind can create one sentence, and if our mouth says that one sentence, we can change the world. Generally, it's not in a good way, though. But wars have been started over something people said. Wow, so mind is a very strong influence. So the next time you wonder why that hurricane hit New Orleans, those are the five reasons a Buddhist would use to give meaning to that event. I hope that was useful. We're going to go into meditation now. Okay, we started with what we say and what we do. We have the five precepts. The five precepts are designed to change our karma. I guess I should tell you what those precepts are. The five precepts are to avoid taking life. Every Buddhist takes that precept. I will avoid taking life. The second precept is to avoid taking what is not given. I will avoid stealing. The third precept is to avoid sexual misconduct. The fourth precept is to avoid lying. The fifth precept is to avoid consuming intoxicants. 
Those are the five training precepts of every Buddhist. Those precepts are designed to change what we say and what we do. They're designed to change our speech karma and our action karma. Now, the last one, I went and had dinner with the Jesuits at Loyola Marymount University a couple years ago, and I realized that Catholic priests don't have that fifth precept, not to consume intoxicants. What's that? Yes, yes, they do. Yes, they do. So what's wrong with having a beer once in a while? What's wrong with having a little wine? The problem in Buddhism with that is it could lead you to a state of heedlessness. You could end up losing all the wisdom you've acquired through your spiritual practice and becoming this really stupid person that does something very unskillful and creates a lot of suffering for yourself and everybody around you. So there's nothing wrong with drinking. There's something wrong with what it does to your consciousness. It steals your wisdom. Now, if you're becoming a Buddhist for the first time and you're a six-pack-a-week guy and you go down to three bottles a week, you're being a good Buddhist. This is ultimate perfection, not immediate perfection. So if you're used to lying and you lie a little less, that's okay. You're going in the right direction. If you kill ants because you can't stand ants, and now you kill half the ants you've killed, you're going in the right direction. So it's this, this is our, these are training precepts. They are not commandments. They are not given to us. We take them. We accept them. We are training ourselves to be perfect human beings. And it took the Buddha 550 lifetimes to become a perfect human being. That's a really long time. So we can't be too hard on ourselves. Okay, that does it. Hope you enjoyed it. Part two is coming up. That'll be the third podcast. Again, this is Reverend Kusla from downtown Los Angeles. Urban Dharma, where suffering is always optional.